You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, March 25th, 2021. I'm Cota Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. Today's show, Ellie Shannon gives information on the stabbing in University Village, and I'll be discussing how the changes to COVID-19 restriction dial will lower ch- restrictions on businesses. After that, Dixon Lawson will update us on CSU Athletics, and then you'll be hearing a continued discussion between myself and Chris LaBelle from CSU's extended campus on tech boot camps. Then, Kota will be telling us about struggles faced by the U.S. refugee program and an update with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Then, takes from the Anthropocene hosts discuss climate change-caused displacement. After that, I'm giving new information on COVID-19, and Ivy brings information on a ballot measure discussing the future of the Hughes Stadium site. To conclude the show, Kota will be giving some updates on technology, and I'll be telling you about the weirdest stories I've found recently. Let's move right into campus and local news. Hey everyone, this is Ellie Shannon, and we are still in our 10th week of classes here at Colorado State University. Saliva testing is still available for students, staff, and faculty through RamWeb. Testing sites are at Moby Arena Parking Lot, Mac Gym in the Recreation Center, and at the Veterinary Teaching Hospital on South Campus. It is the last day of debates on Thursday for the ASCSU elections. At 6.30, candidates running for Speaker of the Senate will debate topics that face CSU. Visit ASCSU.colostate.edu for more information on how to vote, and you can tune into the debate by visiting Channel 11. Last night, on Wednesday, March 24th, at University Apartments, a stabbing occurred. CSU updated students, staff, and faculty regularly, telling individuals to avoid the area until police activities subsided at around 12 a.m. One person was injured with non-life-threatening injuries. More updates are to come on this after more information is revealed. CSU will hold an online information session on March 29th about the redevelopment of Hughes Stadium. The session will be held via Zoom at 11 a.m. and Q&A will be available. Later in today's show, Ivy Winfrey will be explaining both sides to this proposition, so check that out in about 30 minutes. The ACT Human Rights Film Festival is still taking place until March 28th. The event is virtual, and for ticket pricing and Zoom information, go to virtualevents.colostate.edu. Make sure to tune into the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m., and always make sure to listen to KCSU. I'm Ellie Shannon, and you're listening to 90.5 FM. Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is the Rocky Mountain Review. Colorado's first FEMA-supported max vaccination site is now open in Larimer County. According to Molly Bohannon at the Coloradoan, the site, located at the Ranch of Evans Complex in Loveland, held a soft opening on Tuesday and officially opened Wednesday, vaccinating about 1,000 people between the two days. The site is expected to vaccinate about 1,000 people per day Thursday and Friday. Starting next week, it'll be open from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Monday through Saturday. Julie Brooks, spokesperson for FEMA, said the site has requested 12,000 vaccines for next week, which would allow the site to vaccinate 2,000 people per day. Colorado Governor Jared Polis, attending the site's opening on Wednesday, said, quote, 
This is one of the easiest ways to get your vaccines. You don't even have to get out of your car. These are large-scale, simple, fast, easy sites. So when it comes to the quantity of vaccines that we are getting and will get, sites like this will play a major role in helping to serve the people of Colorado to end the pandemic and to save lives, end quote. The Ranch Clinic is one of six major drive-through COVID-19 vaccination sites across Colorado, but it's the only one with a FEMA partnership. It has the capacity to conduct about 6,000 vaccinations daily when the supply allows. Last month, Polis said Colorado was getting about 100,000 doses per week. The number is now up to 300,000, and he believes another 100,000 will be added soon. He said the state will likely move to the next phase of vaccinations in early April, but he's not yet set a date. People currently eligible for vaccination can make an appointment at the ranch or another provider through laramorehealth.secure.force.com slash vaccine or by calling 970-498-5500. If you are eligible but have transportation restrictions, transportation can be provided to you at little to no cost, according to county representatives. Those currently eligible for vaccines in Colorado are as follows. Anyone 50 or older, anyone 16 and older with at least one high-risk health condition, students facing higher education faculty and staff, food and restaurant employees, manufacturing workers, U.S. Postal Service employees, public and specialized transportation employees, public health employees, human services employees, people providing direct services to Coloradoans experiencing homelessness, frontline journalists, select local and state government employees, adults who received a placebo in the COVID-19 vaccine trial, agriculture workers, grocery store employees, pre-K-12 educators, school staff, and child care workers in licensed programs, health care workers, long-term care faculty, staff, and residents, first responders, including police, firefighters, correctional workers, funeral services workers, and COVID-19 response personnel, and select members of state executive and judicial branches. Appointments and services that provide transportation are available when people call the COVID-19 vaccine hotline at 1-877-268-2926. Colorado has loosened its COVID-19 dial restrictions as of Wednesday, after more than 1.4 million Coloradoans have have received at least one COVID-19 vaccine dose and nearly 900,000 people are fully immunized. In Larimer County, which is currently operating at the third lowest level yellow, Wednesday's shift to the state's new Dial 3.0 framework means capacity restrictions on personal gatherings in select businesses, restaurants, and events certified through the county's Level Up program are officially lifted. This marks the last planned de-evolution of Colorado's COVID-19 dial, which is expected to be retired next month, but until then, the restrictions are changing. Under Dial 3.0, restaurants, gyms, and outdoor events that are certified to operate under Level Blue restrictions, like those certified through Larimer County's Level Up program, can officially open up back to 100% capacity with 6-foot spacing. Bars that don't serve food, which have been largely closed since the start of COVID-19, can also officially reopen under Wednesday's Dial 3.0 change as long as they are certified through Level Up. They can reopen to 25% capacity or 75 people, whichever is fewer. Restaurants that are not certified through Level Up must wait until Larimer County as a whole moves down to Level Blue to open with 100% capacity. Under uh, Dial 3.0, counties in levels blue and yellow can officially lift restrictions on indoor and outdoor personal gatherings, meaning that they are no longer capped at a maximum of 10 people in no more than two different households. 
Despite this change, personal gatherings involving any people are not uh, that are not fully vaccinated for COVID-19 should still follow guidelines from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. These guidelines ask that you stay home if you've been diagnosed with COVID-19, have symptoms of it, have been exposed to it, or awaiting test results for it, prioritize outdoor activities and gatherings over indoor ones, and avoid attending gatherings or events outside your local community, maintain a distance of at least six feet or more from people who don't live in your house, hold and avoid physical contact, and wear a mask when interacting with others and bring extra masks, use hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol in it. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU. After the break, we'll be hearing the RMR Sports Report, so stay tuned. We have an update on the story Ellie Shannon reported on today concerning the stabbing incident in the University Village Apartments last night. Colorado State University released a statement this morning to members of the CSU community, uh, community explaining updates on the situation. The victim, according to the statement, was treated for on-scene for their injuries before being transported to a hospital where they are expected to physically recover. Police worked for several hours last night in an attempt to find the suspect before finding the suspect deceased in their apartment at the University Village apartment complex. The suspect was a current CSU employee and former student. The names of both the victim and suspect have not yet been released. More information on the situation can be found at safety.colostate.edu. CSU's statement read, quote, We know this tragic situation comes on the heels of many other retching and violent events across the nation, including the shooting deaths of 10 people by active assailant in Boulder earlier this week. We care about each of you and encourage you to reach out to help if you need it, end quote. Local music is a sample element of every city around the world, but unique to every community. KCSU will showcase a part of our international local music exchange, a radio show and podcast collaboration with college radio stations around the world. All participating stations are sharing their local music community with the world. Listen to the podcast at kcsufm.com. Dixon Lawson, and you're tuned in to the RMR Sports Report for March 25th, 2021. Today on the RMR Sports Report, I just wanted to let everyone know that tonight at 7 p.m. right here on 90.5 KCSU FM Fort Collins, we will have live CSU Volleyball taking on the Boise State Broncos. 
myself and Jonathan Gillen will be there providing all the action as well as on Saturday we will have the last home game here in Moby Arena for the 2021 season myself and Caleb Allen will be there bringing you all the action once again you can catch that live on 90.5 KCSU FM or you can go on our website at kcsufm.com and tune into our live stream as always, be sure to tune in every Tuesday and Thursday, 4 to 5 p.m. for a new episode of the RMR, brought to you right here on 90.5. My name is Dixon Lawson, and you've been tuned into the RMR Sports Report for March 25th, 2021. Today, I am joined by Chris LaBelle from Colorado State University, and we're going to talk about a new program that Colorado State University has partnered with Full Stack Academy for, that is the Colorado State Coding and Colorado State Cyber Boot Camps. So those are launching this summer as part of CSU's overall tech boot camps. And I just wanted to know, why did CSU choose to be part of Full Stack's boot camp program? Sure. Well, Coda, it's, it's, by the way, it's nice to meet you. And and yeah, I'm Chris LaBelle. So I'm the executive director of CSU Extended Campus. Um, and, uh, and so very, very excited to launch these. The primary reason that we've um, entered into this partnership with Full Stack, the Full Stack Academy, is that we are very um, uh, uh, committed to providing high quality uh, educational programs that align well with workforce needs. And so that's the first thing is that we know that there are a large number of job openings in the areas of cybersecurity and full stack coding. And um, and in fact, we know that there are 19,000 openings for cybersecurity and about 13,000 uh, coding openings in Colorado, and that may not square well with what many of us, uh, you know, would would guess, but it's in fact, um, you know, really points to a need for upskilling, for training, um, and for again, a more accessible certificate format or what I might call long format um, training opportunities that are focused on on discrete skills to help people slot right, you know, directly into those types of positions after completing a program like this. Um, Just very quickly too, as a part of a land grant institution, we're really focused on statewide, our statewide constituents, meaning every Coloradan. Um, And and we know as a part of uh, the division, a division that focuses on statewide outreach, we're we're committed to the workforce needs of each community in Colorado. And so, so again, the fact that this meets uh, you know, an opportunity for um, advanced job advancement, career advancement, um, new, you know, new career for people who are, who are moving from one to another. So all very much high, high um, priorities for us. And Full Stack's reputation uh, was, was known to us. Um, they're one of a handful of, um, of organizations in this space that, that I personally um, know and, and trust. And, um, and we're so excited with the partnership. Can these courses add on to previously learned information on coding or cybersecurity? They, they absolutely can. And that's one of the real advantages of, of a program like this that's decoupled from a, a degree program is that the on-ramp, so to speak, um, doesn't include um, the type of curricular preparation or requirements, prerequisites that are typical or typical of a degree program. But that doesn't mean that these aren't rigorous programs. They're extremely rigorous. Uh, we use a lot of analytics um, and tracking. Um, there's a lot of, um, I would say, well-formed pedagogy um, that's kind of manifested, you know, through the types of instructors who are hired and, and the curriculum uh, that's used, but also on, on ch- um, visible in terms of the, ch- uh, the status checks um, and assessments that are, that are used. And so <clears throat> part of the, the front-end qualification for this program uh, includes, uh, because of that, an assessment. So really it's a logic reasoning assessment, about 45 minutes. And so we're not asking that people come in 
<clears throat> having a degree or prior coursework, but but a part of the the front end qualification does um, include this logic reasoning um, test. Uh, so we're looking for a, a minimum level of competency that we think would carry over into success within the program itself. And so, no, very much it's a from an accessibility standpoint, something we're extremely excited about for that reason, that it's really open to, I've, I've partnered with an organization, another organization back in New Hampshire, when I lived in New Hampshire, very similar type of program. And we saw a lot of um, school teachers, um, people with no STEM background coming into these programs and having a lot of success. All right, that's great to hear. So since any skill set is really encouraged to apply so long as they can um, handle that assessment, if someone doesn't do so well in that assessment, are they barred or discouraged from applying in the future? No, the, so yeah, so the way that the, the assessment works is that full stack will meet with the candidate and discuss the areas of, of deficit, um, you know, where there's a need for additional kind of formation or preparation. So it really becomes more of a one-on-one -on -one discussion and less, a, a, you know, kind of a, a, a gatekeeping uh, mechanism to enforce kind of a, um, you know, a, a more exclusive, an exclusive um, kind of right to or access um, to the program and more um, a discussion about uh, preparedness. So it's, again, really handled more on a one-on-one -on -one, um, uh, discussion and something that we, again, we encourage anyone from different, any different, any field that is non-STEM to apply to these programs. It's, these are really set up for beginners to coding. For instance, with coding, it's primarily JavaScript and then with cybersecurity, Again, um, our students are learning about systems and tools and technologies, but from the standpoint of um, you know, not starting with any, any preparation per se. All right, definitely. Thanks for that clarification. And then why did CSU decide that the underemployment issue in the tech field was really worth taking note of? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, so and I can't speak for... Uh, uh, wouldn't pretend to speak for CSU as a, as a, as a whole. Um, our, our institution um, focuses on workforce needs across the entire spectrum of different disciplines and workforce needs. And so this is really just one program of hundreds, maybe even thousands um, that exist to provide improved access to um, some type of um, formation, um, uh, educational preparation, for the workforce. Um, we, um, being again, a part of a division that focuses on, or that includes cooperative extension, I would say within our division, you know, we focus on a tremendous, like a very broad number of different topics that include things like gardening, um, self-improvement. We are a lifelong learning um, for what we uh, d describe as seasoned adults, those 50 and over, um, which again, include um, courses that span any number of different topics. Um, so yeah, so this really just fits into a much larger um, portfolio of programs that are all um, meant to provide increased access to uh, opportunities, particularly workforce opportunities. And then kind of going back to this idea of equity and accessibility of these programs, how do you think that these course schedules really are working to allow for both traditional students and adult learners to have an equitable experience with these boot camps? I, yeah, that's a great question, Coda, and one that I, I have a lot of passion um, kind of for and can speak to. So uh, because our the core part of our organization focuses on online learning, uh, much of the, the online learning that we provide as an institution is really, would say, centered on improving access, which in my mind has everything to do with improved equity um, and inclusion. And um, a lot of the type of work that we do includes the focus on the pedagogies that are 
focused on universal learning and, and inclusive learning and the way that we design our programs, the way that we, um, we promote our programs, the way that we then assess students in our programs all wrap around that ax axle of uh, inclusion and equity. Um, we, we also, what I would say about these programs more specifically, these are programs that fit into kind of traditional uh, well, it sounds funny, but traditional unconventional schedules, meaning um, weekday evenings and as well um, weekends. So these courses are offered live um, stream, essentially, but recorded um, two days a week in the evenings and then Saturday morning. <clears throat> um, currently, because we're, um, you know, we're just not in physical, physical space, um, these are fully online. But once we return back to some normalcy um, post-pandemic, um, we look forward to hosting these uh, in person, face to face, both in Denver, well, in Denver and possibly at some point in other cities. All right. And then many traditional students at CSU may be graduating also without a clear um, answer for employment. Do you think that these, course, this, these courses are really worth looking into for these students as well as the non traditional learners? I, I do. Yeah, without reservation. I, I've part of my confidence in saying that as I've seen um, these types of programs articulate well with a, a graduate, a newly graduated student. Um, that doesn't mean that, um, that this in any way kind of supplants um, the, you know, the degree work that a student has done. But I would say that it's um, for those students looking particularly to transfer into a STEM um, kind of area, um, you know, area particularly cybersecurity and coding. This is really an excellent bridge um, to those kinds of jobs. And um, and I, I being a, a humanities person myself, I went through, um, you know, a number of different humanities programs, um, and was, you know, you might say, um, you know, not always focused on, um, you know, kind of the um, the financial outcomes of that, and have no at all reservations about or regrets. Uh, but what I would say is that, you know, these are the type of articulation I've been talking about a connection to jobs. You know, we're, we're looking at, again, um, you know, almost, um, you know, 25,000 open positions for both coding and cybersecurity um, uh, roles. And in terms of a cybersecurity analyst, the typical starting salary for a, a role like that is about $70,000 and about $53,000 for web developers. So, so these programs also have some, you know, some connection to life choice in terms of career and how that might translate to not just the discipline or area of interest, but also to the, the salary. For sure. And then just to touch base on this, what do you think is really unique about this boot camp compared to, let's say, certificate programs or just taking a course on um, coding or cybersecurity at a university? I, yeah, I'm, again, I'm just an excellent question. And I, I have some pretty strong opinions simply because I, I've worked um, in this field for some time and have um, worked closely with organizations um, providing these kinds of programs. So my quick answer is that these are, these programs are, are um, built to specification. So they're built specifically with um, workforce outcomes in mind, meaning jobs that, that translates to discrete skills that are all very clearly um, sequenced and integrated within a very cohesive, well thought out, um, uh, well supported program. Now, what's interesting about these programs is again, they're, they're long format, um, but they're you know, short format compared to a, to a degree program. So they're not four or five years. We're, we're talking you know, about um, 26 um, weeks 
um, intense though. So, um, so I won't, uh, you know, try to, um, you know, really uh, deflect from the fact that these are, these are intense programs. So they do require commitment. Now, I guess really to your point, how are these different because they're built to specification with those outcomes in mind. And they're in, in, in many cases like full stack, they come out of, um, uh, a tech company plus a partnership with a, a, an institution of higher education. They also typically include, as Fullstack does, um, a tremendous amount of assessment, um, analytics, uh, predictive analytics, um, benchmarking, and tre- a tremendous investment, amount of investment spent on the student-to-teacher ratio, the quality of the instructors, and all of that with particular focus, again, on the workforce outcome. So that's, that's where this is not meant to replace um, or compete with a degree. It simply uh, exists in a, in a parallel uh, universe, so to speak, but with tighter alignment uh, you know, to some of these domains. Is there anything else that you would like to add about this partnership between CSU and Full Stack Academy? Yeah. So, so again, really, we're really excited about this program. Um, really encourage everyone to consider it. And in particular, I want to point out that there are some really um, compelling scholarships too. So I want to make sure that those are um, you know, made visible in this discussion. So military personnel or veterans, if you fit that, that um, category, um, scholarships of 500 to, to $2,000, so pretty significant CSU alumni, CSU current students and CSU employees. And so four uh, different categories uh, where we're offering scholarships. And again, would encourage you to just reach out and have a discussion about, um, you know, whether uh, this program is a fit for you. All right. Thanks so much. Okay, Coda. Hey, thanks so much. Take care. You too. Again, that was Chris LaBelle from the CSU Extended Campus talking to me about the tech boot camps being offered starting this summer. I'm Coda Babcock. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on KCSU Fort Collins, and we'll be right back in about two minutes with national news. CSU thanks Tribal Rights for their continued underwriting support. Tribal Rights is located on College Avenue in Old Town, Fort Collins, and is a full custom tattoo, body piercing, and jewelry studio. Learn more at tribalrightstattoo.com. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now for Thursday's national news highlights. After severe budget cuts and quota changes within the Trump administration's refugee plan, the Biden administration is facing new challenges in saving the U.S. refugee program. According to Tom Gillettin from National Public Radio, Biden currently aims to admit 125,000 refugees into the U.S. this year, which is 10 times the number that we're able to enter in 2020. 
the organizations tasked with supporting these refugees express concerns over whether or not this is a possibility. Chief Executive Krish Omara Vignayara from the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service is one of the people most concerned about the failure to meet this goal. In the past year, Vignayara says that they've had to close offices and lay off staff due to the pandemic and due to decreases in funding. Six of the nine organizations that assist in this goal are faith-based, meaning that this work relies heavily on charitable donations and volunteer service, which may not be available. After a recent controversy surrounding the AstraZeneca vaccine, the company released more data from the study, proving it to be 76% effective against symptomatic COVID-19 compared to 79%, which was the statistic reported earlier this week. According to Laura Niergaard from the Associated Press, the recent scandal involved an independent panel accusing AstraZeneca of giving incomplete information through data cherry-picking. AstraZeneca offers a cheaper alternative to other vaccines and is more able to be stored for long-term use. AstraZeneca claims the new information, quote, confirms that our COVID-19 vaccine is highly effective in adults, including the, those aged 65 and over, end quote. The United States slipped 11 points in a decade in a ranking on world democracies. According to Sam Levine from The Guardian, a new report from democracy watchdog Freedom House shows a new low for the U.S. in the ranking based on political rights, civil liberties, inequality, and corruption. The U.S. received an 83% grade, dropping 11 points from its ranking of 94% just 10 years ago. The concerns addressed in this grading focused on issues in criminal justice and voting, specifically the treatment and inequities faced by black people and Native Americans. This is shown through severe partisan gerrymandering, polarization, and threatening events through for democracy in the U.S. Recommendations include increasing accessibility in voting and creating laws related to political funding and donations. That's all for national news highlights. Now we're going to hear a discussion about how climate change is displacing communities. In about 15 minutes, we'll be back for COVID-19 updates. It is common knowledge to us that Global warming and climate change are continuing to implement risks on our daily lives. As the ice caps melt, warmer temperatures continue to rise and the sea level begins to rise, which displaces people influenced by these environmental issues. According to Columbia University, 40% of the world's population live less than a mile from the coast. And it's pretty scary to realize that so much of the world's population are at risk for displacement influenced by sea level rise or if they aren't already. Also, uh, another part is the Western influence of nature impacts these environmental issues in a negative way because of how it regards nature as a whole. Hello, I'm Mariel Hahn, and you just heard from Claire Toggin, a third-year anthropology major here at CSU. Claire is our guest speaker on today's podcast regarding displacement influenced by environmental challenges. How are you today, Claire? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Let's jump into some questions right away, if you don't mind. Regarding some takeaways from your introduction, why is westernization not a healthy approach towards the environment? So westernization, influence of nature, only utilizes nature for its exchange value or extraction of resources. According to Lisi Crawl, we have this uneducated perception about nature where we only regard it for its profit gain. For example, if you look at our agricultural system today, it's influenced by the use of pesticides and herbicides and degrades land and a loss of species as well instead of appropriately responding to the environment for reasonable crop growth. And 
Lisi Kroll also mentions some trends of the history of Judeo-Christianity. They believe that nature is a sinful place that must be tamed. Although this isn't really said word for word much today, it's the trends still lie within this westernization influence of nature, as well as a class structure of who gets the privilege to explore nature. So upper class has the privilege to explore nature and so forth. Meanwhile, lower class doesn't get that opportunity to. Um, and finally, a disregard of indigenous views of nature, but these should be more represented and understood today. And what threats do we face today regarding the environment? So going off of the indigenous relationship viewpoint, not acknowledging this as an appropriate measure for our relationships with nature can lead to a lot of issues. According to Kyle White, some of these issues include economic ruin, health impairments, political conflicts, a displacement, and cultural loss. Kyle White also mentions the negative influence of colonialism, industrialism, and capitalism. These are also influenced by westernization view of nature and represent those themes as well. Going off of in my intro talking about global warming, there is the continuous rise of a two degrees Celsius of the global temperatures. So if we reach this point, uh, which I hope we never do, this is almost a point of no return, basically, uh, where we will see even worse patterns of climate change and global warming than we already do, as well as uh, displacement for people in the coastal communities. And according to the Union of Concerned Scientists, this displacement will lead to loss of property value and increased poverty levels in the United States. More so on, on sea level rise, according to Yale, since 2006, glaciers were losing 22 to 40 billion tons of ice per year, and it's estimated by 2100 these sea levels could rise more than two or six and a half feet, which with the increase of carbon emissions, which will greatly displace uh, so many people. What are some examples of displacement influenced by environmental challenges? So authors Marino and Lazarus, they look at their research example of Shishmaref, Alaska, this is an Inupiat community on the west coast of Alaska. It's a indigenous community where their economy is influenced by harvesting and fishing. Over time, with sea level rise and displacement influences, their jobs have been lost and food resources are depleting. So 27% live below the poverty line and their population is only 563 as of 2010. As erosion increases, storms increase, and infectious disease rises because the water is contaminated from erosion. In fall of 2012, there was a storm that took out 30 feet of land in just one night. And finally, and since 2002, their only solution to that they have thought of is to move more inland from the coast as the sea levels rise because there's a lack of support and funding and overall knowledge of these displacement challenges in these communities. Another example is demonstrated by authors Maldonado et al. And they look at their study of the Isle de Jean Charles in Terrebonne Parish, Louisiana. This coastal community is a fishing and hunting primarily for their economy and there's similar trends as there are in Shishmarif of the loss of their food resources and job resources. Louisiana faces some of the highest rates of sea level rise in the world, and this community in particular was greatly challenged by the 2010 BP oil spill that created these health problems, took out their food, their ecosystems. These authors mention that if nothing's done, by 2050 this isle could be gone forever.
more so about both of these places. In Alaska and Louisiana, their economy, their education, their health infrastructure and culture are being challenged. It's not just the environment or the people that are facing these risks. It's so many systems, too. And more so about sea level rise, according to Marino and Lazarus, as the salt affects their water supply, which increases health issues and diseases, and ocean acidification increases surface temperatures as continues to come on the land, as well as destroying these ecosystems and, and coral colonies. Coral colonies are these natural barriers that protect the coast from storm surges, but because these are being wiped out, it's creating these more vulnerable areas to these coastal communities. So how are bureaucratic organizations responding to displaced communities like the ones in Alaska and Louisiana? So going kind of off of the example of Louisiana, there's a lot of environmental impacts from oil companies. But according to Maldonado et al., they emphasize that there's no change with oil companies because they bring profit to the economies. Why would you want to get rid of them if they bring so much money into the United States? And these authors also continue to explain that these disaster relief programs, the funds are only available after the storm, so it doesn't regard acute accumulation of placement issues of these environmental problems. Again, with federal programs, can be unavailable a lot of times to tribal communities, and these are groups that are the most affected by displacement. Finally, uh, Dr. Brown wrote a book called Standing in the Need about her ethnographic research on a black family that suffered during Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And some of the examples of the bureaucratic help after the storm was quite heartbreaking. For example, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, provided these temporary living spaces for families when they came back to Louisiana after the storm. We're only supposed to be in here temporarily as their homes were being rebuilt, but we're in here for 18 months or more, which didn't help with mental help or larger families um, were separated too because they couldn't fit everybody in these tiny places. They were also getting insurance clearances from road home, and this could take some of the families didn't get their insurance clearances for three or more years, which was incredibly frustrating to read because a lot of them had to pay for food and medicine and support their family and their children and not getting these resources for this long of a time is incredibly heartbreaking to know. Brown also mentions about the extremely comprehensive relation between employees from FEMA and callers getting help. They were barely assisting the people who needed help and were just designed to read a set script and get callers off the phone, it sounded like. I like to mention the, the language barrier between these employees and callers. So it's commonly spoken throughout Louisiana, African-American vernacular English, which originates from Creole and is not really understood in Western syntax. So it is incredibly frustrating when you have these two people that can't really understand each other and one doesn't really want to help the other as well. So... What are some approaches that we can use to solve climate change influence displacement? One of the big things that I would love to push for is incorporating indigenous voices and indigenous relations with nature. And this includes themes of reciprocity, balance, harmony, um, and kind of a give or take putting in to the environment in a healthy approach. And the environment gives back to you rather than depleting it, changing the land for your own benefit and responding to it in a healthy manner so that there's a beneficial relationship between humans, nature, and all living species. Maldonado et al. emphasizes the point of protecting tribal rights as they are the most affected by 
displacement and the preservation of coastal communities. And Marino and Lazarus recognize that ecological challenges impact our social, cultural, economic, political systems, and our health infrastructure. So adapting these systems and and programs with a more sustainable response to the environment and incorporating environmental law within these systems will greatly impact how we regard and take care of our environment today. But some good news, though, from the Union of Concerned Scientists, they say if we continue to decrease carbon emissions, we could reduce the risk by 80% by 2060. So there is a lot of hope for the future, but it, we really do need to act now because it is, it is important. And if we want to see these numbers, it's, it's urgent to continue caring for our environment now. Finally, renewable energy sources. Uh, this includes taking out oil companies and replacing them with solar energy or wind power, et cetera, but also emphasizing the point to make sure that people that do work in oil and gas companies do have jobs in more renewable energy sources so that we don't experience a incredible job loss, as well as incorporating indigenous, platform, indigenous voices to be heard on platforms, sustain, building more sustainable infrastructure and buildings. A lot of this is actually understood and mentioned in the Green New Deal that will hopefully be pushed when Biden takes office this January. So hopefully we can see some great changes to that. So it looks like there's a lot of room for improvement regarding environmental challenges. But implementing solutions to climate change and global warming seem to solve a lot of areas at once. Yeah, you're exactly right. There's not one solution regarding solving displacement issues influenced by environmental challenges. However, sustainable approaches appeal to solving a lot of these problems at once. I like how you mentioned some hopefulness for the future, but encourage urgency to act now. And I think you've helped listeners understand issues of displacement surrounding environmental challenges. Thank you. I hope they recognize the urgency and hopefulness, too. Thank you for joining us today, Claire. Thanks so much for your time. KCSU Fort Collins, it's time for the Ramblers. Hey you, yeah you, want more of the closest play-by-play and analysis of CSU live sports, including volleyball, baseball, club hockey, and pregame analysis for football games? At KCSU, we give you live sports updates all year around. Support KCSU sports through our biannual DJ-a-thon fundraiser this April 5th through the 10th. Help us keep the sports you love around by calling 970-491-5278 and joining the 905 Club with donations as little as $7.50 or donate online at kcsufm.com slash donate. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. Now for COVID-19 updates. After this, we'll be hearing about the ballot measure to decide the future of the Hughes Stadium site. I'm Coda Babcock and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. Colorado State University reports a cumulative total of over 2,800 cases of COVID-19 since May 2020. Larimer County reports over 21,800 cases with 230 deaths and almost 400 outbreaks. 
Nearly 150,000 vaccinations have been administered in the county, which currently is rated at a medium risk score. On the state's newest edition of the dial framework, Larimore County rates at a level yellow concern, and 90 new cases were reported Wednesday. 11 days in the past two weeks have seen a minimum of 15 new daily cases, and the county has reached a 14-day case rate of 245 per 100,000 inhabitants. 26 COVID patients currently receive treatment in area hospitals, and overall hospital utilization is at 69%. Intensive care units are 77% full. Statewide, Colorado reports over 450,000 cases of COVID-19 and over 6,100 deaths due to the virus. The state has over 4,000 outbreaks and nearly 2.7 million people have received testing. Nationwide, there are over 30 million cases of COVID-19 with an increase of 80,000 Wednesday. Deaths have reached over 545,000 Wednesday with an increase of 1,600 on Wednesday as well. Cases are plateauing, while deaths decreased by 31% in the past two weeks. The only way for those not yet eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine to protect themselves and others from virus transmission and complications is by washing your hands for 20 seconds regularly, wearing a face mask or cloth face covering, avoiding touching your face, and staying at home when possible. Information from this segment was gathered from the CSU COVID site, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the New York Times, and the Centers for Disease Control. For information on vaccine eligibility, go to covid19.colorado.gov. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. If you missed any parts of our show so far, check us out on Spotify or online at kcsufm.com news. Now we're going to be hearing about information on the Hughes Stadium's potential future coming up on our ballots here in Fort Collins. The Alliance for Suicide Prevention of Larimer County gives free presentations to teens and adults in schools, workplaces, and congregations throughout our community. Participants are taught how to recognize depression in themselves and others, what the common signs of suicidality are, and how to take action to help save a life. They also explore coping mechanisms and protective factors. To schedule a free presentation, call 970-482-2209 or email executivedirector at suicideprevent.org. For more information, visit allianceforsuicideprevention.org. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and you just heard about the ballot measure to decide the future of Hughes Stadium. Now, for Thursday's tech updates. The United Kingdom's Bank of England revealed that Alan Turing's legacy will be honored by placing his image on their 50-pound note. According to James Vincent at The Verge, Turing served as a codebreaker in World War II and was a pioneer in mathematics, science, and artificial intelligence. The Bank of England releases this note in June, and the choice to include him comes partially from his prosecution following the Second World War for being gay. After breaking the Enigma Code and allowing England to advance in the Second World War, he was charged with gross indecency for homosexual acts in 1952, a law that remained until the 60s. He died by either suicide or an accidental cyanide poisoning two years following this charge. At the time, Turing did not deny being gay, and part of his sentence included a chemical castration. The note honoring his life and legacy features his birthday written in binary code, as well as a mathematical formula used to crack the Enigma code. CEOs of Facebook, Twitter, and Google appeared before Congress Thursday to decide who is liable for the spread of misinformation on their platforms. 
According to Shannon Bond at National Public Radio, this specifically targeted the spread of extremism and hoaxes on their platforms. Conducted over a video call, the CEOs spoke to Congress about rewriting internet regulations and how the platforms can shift the online status quo. Representative Jan Schkowski of Illinois explained to NPR that, quote, There is a bipartisan agreement that the status quo is just not working. Big tech has failed to respond to these grave challenges time and time again, end quote. Plans for the January 6th attack on the Capitol were all over Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, as well as smaller social media platforms like Parler and Gab. Facebook reacted too slowly to groups with Stop the Steal claims that promoted the attack, according to some of the congressional concerns. A report from advocacy organization Avaz said that Facebook even drove users to confusing content on the election. Fadi Quran, the campaign director of Avaz, said to NPR, quote, We have over a year's worth of evidence that the platform helped drive billions of views to pages and content that confused voters, created division and chaos, and in some instances, incited violence, end quote. Select sports betting companies began giving users a new tool to help those with gambling addiction or compulsive gambling habits to block themselves from using their sites. According to Wayne Perry at the Associated Press, Gamban is a software being offered to customers in the U.S. to prevent vulnerable populations with these issues from accessing gambling sites such as Unibet and FanDuel. Carolyn Renzin, the chief risk and compliance officer for FanDuel, said of the decision, quote, Educating customers about the importance of gambling responsibility and within limits is a business imperative and ethically the right thing to do, end quote. By offering this tool, the industry is shifting to protect more vulnerable users from facing negative personal consequences related to gambling. That's all for tech news updates. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. We'll be right back with weird news in about two minutes. So stay tuned to KCSU Fort Collins on 90.5 FM. Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and sometimes things need to get a little bit weird. So here's a few of the weirdest stories I've found from around the world today. An Australian government official's display of pop culture, comics, and anime figures have been found by the Commonwealth Work, Health, and Safety Authority to be a, quote, psychological hazard. According to Alex Walker at Kotaku.com, Deputy President of Australia's Fair Work Commission, Gerard Boyce's figurines had first become the subject of debate at a Senate Estimates Committee hearing last year. Some members of the Fair Work Commission questioned whether the figures would, quote, undermine trust and professionalism, end quote, of the commission at the time, and the deputy president was forced to remove at least one of the figurines. It's not clear exactly what was removed, but the Sydney Morning Herald reported that some of the figures included Scarlett Johansson's representation of Major from Ghost in the Shell, a figurine of Jared Leto's depiction of the Joker, comic book character Harley Quinn wearing fishnet stockings, and Captain America. Now, Comcare has found that the figurines did not violate Australia's work health and safety laws, but they, quote, considered the display of the figurines to be a psychological hazard, end quote. A psychological hazard, according to the Safe Work Australia, is any source of stress in the workplace and labeling of something as such is usually an indicator that future action needs to be taken by an employer to reduce or remove said stress. It is not clear if there will be any actions taken in regards to their labeling of a psychological hazard. A new measure being considered by Maine state legislators would make Viking-style funeral pyres legal in Maine. 
According to Steve Collins at the Sun-Journal, a bill before the state legislature's Health and Human Services Committee would allow a nonprofit that possesses at least 20 acres to carry out open-air cremations, which are cremations done outside of crematoriums and usually done in a funeral pyre, one at a time, and to scatter the ashes on the property. A nonprofit cemetery group called Good Ground Great Beyond, formed in 2018, is trying to get permission to have outdoor funeral pyres on a 63-acre forested parcel it has owned in Dresden for the past couple of years. Chuck Lacken, a woodworker and green burial proponent who serves on the nonprofit's board, said that one of the real advantages is that families and friends can gather for the cremation instead of relying on a business to push a body into an incinerator and hit a button. Outdoor cremations are only allowed in two facilities in the United States, both of which exist in Colorado, and are only allowed to perform less than a dozen open-air cremations per year. In Missouri, legislators passed a measure to allow open-air cremations in 2019, but the state's governor, Michael Person, vetoed it. In a report for the United Kingdom's Ministry of Justice, Ivan Vince, an expert in combustion science, looked at the environment and health risks connected to open-air cremation and found nothing to worry about. Vince said that the health risks are negligible beyond 500 meters, and even those close up are taking no greater risk than they would at a bonfire at the same size. He also concluded that funeral pyres held on woodland sites, quote, would have zero carbon footprint, end quote. Nearly 10% of the world's trade has been stopped after a large shipping container became wedged in the Suez Canal. According to Stott Newman at National Public Radio, the ship, also known as the Ever Given and owned by shipping company Evergreen Line, was attempting to pass to the Mediterranean Sea from the Red Sea at Suez Canal before a dust storm picked up and wedged the ship between two sides of the canal. At about 1,300 feet long and 200 feet wide, the Ever Given is among the largest container ships currently in operation and the largest ship to ever pass through the Suez Canal. The Suez Canal is a crucial global trade passage, providing the shortest warm-water maritime route from Europe to Asia. It is 120 miles long, 79 feet deep, and 673 feet wide. Thousands of ships travel through the canal every year. Reuters cited shipping industry sources that said that more than 20 oil tankers were affected by the disruptions. The world's largest container line, AP Mahler Masaryk, said that four of its vessels were stuck in the canal system as a result of the Ever Given's grounding, and three others were backed up waiting to enter the passage, according to the news agency. Reuters, quoting shipping sources, said that if delays continue, shipping firms may be forced to reroute around Africa, and that could add a week to any passage between Asia and Europe. As of Thursday morning, the ship is currently still stuck. My name is Avi Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is the Rocky Mountain Review.
KCSU has a website that hosts all of our podcasts, articles, and videos. Any volunteers who want to write about anything. That can include sports, music, pop culture. Or anything else. You can reach out to the web department for ideas or support. And your content just might show up on kcsufm.com. To get started, email us at web at kcsufm.com. Now, back to music on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And now, for the weather. Today, the Fort Collins area experienced mostly sunny skies with a low chance of rain and low wind speeds, with a high of 48 and a low of 32. Friday, you can expect rain showers with a high of 47 and a low of 27, and Saturday, the sun will come back out with a high of 52 and a low of 29. No chance of rain and about a 10 mile per hour wind speed. Sunday will remain sunny with a high of 62 and a low of 35. No chance of rain and wind slowing down to 6 miles per hour. Monday will be relatively similar with sunny skies and a high of 69 with a low of 32. Wind speeds increasing up to 12 miles per hour. Tuesdays, Tuesday will shift pretty dramatically with rain and snow showers throughout the day. Same wind speeds as Monday with a high of 43 and a low of 26. And for Wednesday, be sure to tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review from 4 to 5 p.m., for our next episode. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Thomas Taylor, Asher Korn, Stephanie Keel, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Elliot Hutchinson, Matt Guzmarati, Maddie Erskine, Jonathan Gillum, Ben Kruger, Ben Haney, Sam Bailey, Sam Benefe, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, Taylor Sandal, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.